This week, we're headed straight to the bank. That is our pre-recorded episodes bank for those weeks when we're just, well, really busy. This episode was recorded over summer 2021, a true blast from the past, she says in October 2021. We hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a rising fifth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department where I study planetary system dynamics. You're going to make me say it, aren't you? I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year graduate student at the University of <laughs> Illinois at Urbana-Champaign where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 44, Fast and Slow. In today's episode, we will be focusing on some discoveries in astronomy that have been anomalous because of their speeds. Timing is a really powerful probe of astrophysical processes, specifically the processes that are underlying the observations that we see in our everyday astrophysics lives. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be confused with my regular life. (laughs) Exactly. I was going to say, like, I see these things every day, but if I didn't, if I wasn't me, maybe I wouldn't. (laughs) Um, Oftentimes, astrophysical events have a characteristic time scale. So you'll expect a given event to take some rough amount of time based on past observations of similar events, as well as models that predict the expected duration for some event. But what about the systems that don't quite match our expectations? Those are going to be the focus of today's episode. So to start us off with some background, Alex and Will, could you tell us what the standard types of transients are that are commonly observed with current surveys and what their characteristic timescales are? Even though when I think of transients, I typically think of supernovae, the vast majority of transients that we've actually discovered, it turns out, are periodic variables. Really? Yeah, systems that regularly change brightness and aren't these kind of big explosive events. So would you say a transient is just anything that changes over time, even if it's periodic? Or how would you define a transient? Yeah, I would define a transient as any phenomenon that changes brightness in the sky on timescales of less than a couple of years. Hmm. Okay. So in the second data release of this wiki transient facility last year, over 700,000 periodic variables were discovered. And unsurprisingly, the majority of these were eclipsing binaries, which are systems where the light from one star uh, in a binary is temporarily blocked out as it orbits the other one. Uh, These change brightness on a timescale of around a day. But if we're talking about high energy transients like supernovae, the rise times you're going to be looking at are around 10 days, but they can actually be observed dimming for multiple years. Eclipsing binaries are the most common false positive for exoplanets. Fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes sense because it's like day-ish timescales, which is similar to the short period exoplanets. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of transients that are aperiodic, or rather a singular event, that are actually still kind of quick. I mean, the example I like to talk about is asteroid observations, where Mm -hmm. they reflect sunlight to Earth, maybe for seconds or minutes, perhaps, in a certain location. So if you look 
at one time and then back again, you won't see it. You have to follow the track of the asteroid to see it. I'm very much not used to thinking of an asteroid as a transient. (laughs) (laughs) It is a weird way of thinking about it, but it sort of makes sense because if you're looking for supernovae, the asteroids are going to get flagged as false positives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and like comets that have outbursts and things like that are also sort of transients, right? Right. Although we don't really hear them being referred to as part of transient surveys usually, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Maybe that's just field conventions. Yeah, I think that's just a terminology thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of standard objects that usually come to mind when people think of transients. When would we maybe see some deviations from those standard timescales? And do we think that it's likely that there are lots of different kinds of objects we've just never seen before? Or if we see deviations, do we usually try to explain them as the tail end of some distribution? Yeah, that's a really excellent question because it opens up a whole field of discussion about whether or not selection bias is coloring what we're able to see and how much we're able to know about our own bias, which is always the challenge. So the timescales that I'm going to be talking about in my astrobite, which we'll get to in a moment, is related to pulsars. And in fact, some of the slowest pulsars that have ever been found. And in fact, the authors kind of insinuate that there might be a huge population of these that we just can't find because our techniques aren't sensitive to them. Could you just briefly explain what a pulsar is? Yeah, I was going to get to that, but sure, sure. A pulsar is a type of neutron star that is the leftover core from a high-mass star after the supernova that has a high magnetic field and a jet which rotates and beams energy in our direction at a regular interval. And so that's the pulse. And not every neutron star is a pulsar, but every pulsar is a neutron star like an astrophysical lighthouse. Ooh, yeah, good one. So do all neutron stars have these jets? It's just they're only called pulsars if they're pointed at us? I don't believe every single one will have the jets, no. Okay. But many will have jets that we will never see because they are pointed away. Mm -hmm. And we just call those neutron stars. (laughs) Yeah. To go back to your original question, Malena, about whether there exist many different rare types of objects that can produce these types of transient events, I feel like we're already starting to veer into kind of shaky territory because in calling something a transient you're referring to the phenomenon that you observe and not the object itself so every event that you observe with new properties may not be tied to its own unique object it might just be something that we mostly understand doing something that we don't understand and i think this is probably most common but i will also mention that we don't know a ton about really fast really dim events So lasting only a few days or less because our instruments just haven't been sensitive to that region of parameter space. So it's possible that there are entirely new objects themselves to be discovered in that area with upcoming surveys. Yeah, that makes sense. Those are the trickiest objects to see, right? Right. The dimmer and (laughs) lower signal to noise ones. Right. What kinds of data sets do we usually use to understand those variations over time? So like what kind of data do transient surveys usually take? Yeah, well, for explosive transients, I would say the three most important pieces of data you can get are the bolometric light curve. You have to make a couple guesses about what this might be. That's how much light the explosion gives off across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. You also want to look at the color over time. That's from the photometry. And also, of course, spectroscopy. Spectroscopy for explosive transients is really kind of the golden ticket because it can tell you so much. So you can get 
temperatures and velocities associated with an explosion. You can get the composition of the ejected material. And so all this can tell us about different things. And typically, we want to look in the optical range, but it depends on where in the evolution of the transient you're looking. So earlier on, you might be more interested in high-energy UV and X-rays that are emitted in very, very short time spans early in an event. And later on, you might go into kind of the infrared and radio, these longer wavelength signals. And the spectra you can only get for the really bright events, right? So I'm guessing you're thinking supernovae. I am thinking supernovae. Yeah, explosive <laughs> transients is what I'm limited to here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I would think, especially once you start getting to the really dim, fast events, then you probably can only really get photometry maybe, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the reason why in upcoming surveys there's going to be such a push for classification with photometry instead of spectroscopy, because spectroscopy just takes too long for all these short mm. timescale transients. Mm-hmm. We don't have the ability to stare at an object for a significant amount of time for every object that we find like this. Mm -hmm. And just to briefly clarify, photometry is just integrating over all the light that we observe. So we're just looking at the light over time, whereas in spectroscopy, we're actually breaking it into all the different wavelength components to get a spectrum. And so you actually need a lot more light in order to get that information and to be able to resolve all the different lines in your spectra. Photometry integrating along all wavelengths in a single band, right? So a single filter, which typically corresponds to, I don't know, maybe G or R or I. Yeah, depending on your instrument. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another important data set that is related to transient studies is modeling. And so there's a huge effort where it relates to pulsars in particular to model what the pulsar spin down will be, how long it will take to slow its rotation over time and connect that understanding to the magnetic fields, its physical structure, the magnetosphere, the area dominated by its local magnetic field and particles, and then to an observable, which would be the pulsar rate. So, you know, on the back end of a lot of these transient efforts is trying to connect what we can see to modeling so that we can actually infer something about physical structure. Yeah, that makes sense and is an incredibly important part in addition to the observations to actually understand Mm -hmm. what they're telling us. Yeah, totally. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both for this quick overview of some of the timescales that show up in astronomy. It's definitely a very extensive topic. I'm sure there are lots of aspects of transient astronomy that we have not touched upon in this 10-minute intro, (laughs) but I'm excited for some of the deep dives into specific scenarios with the upcoming astrobites. So Alex, could you start us off on the fast side with a spectacular transient event named after a fuzzy friend? Yeah, I'm super excited about this one. The astrobite was really well written. The paper, the research is fascinating. Yeah, so I'm just excited to bring it. The Hmm. astrobite is called A Fast Blue Koala Shines Bright in a Distant Galaxy by Wynne Jacobson-Gallon, based on a paper by Ho and others from 2020. So to give a little background, earlier in 2018, we discovered a transient unlike any other that had been previously discovered. That event was named AT2018COW. Because of the COW, it was nicknamed the cow. (laughs) And it was the first of a category now called Fast Blue Optical Transients, or FBOTs for short. We've talked about vague naming in astronomy. Here, Mm. you know exactly what you're talking about. Fast blue optical transients. So they're fast. They rise to peak brightness in less than five days, compared to around 10 for the more traditional supernovae. They're also bluer in color than most transients, 
And in the same way that a blue-white flame is hotter than an orange one, this means that their explosions are extremely hot, and their emission peaks in optical wavelengths, optical transients. Hmm. So astronomers in 2018 discovered the cow, and then in 2020, a new F-bot came along by the wonderfully coincidental name of, get ready for this, ztf 18 a B V K W L A. Mm, what a coincidence. <laughs> you see the joke? <laughs> Why aren't you laughing? So <laughs> So Whoosh. Nobody nobody wanted to call it that, but the last four letters are K W L A. So it became nicknamed the Koala. Mm, there we go. Yeah, yeah. As kind of an homage to the cow a couple years earlier. So <laughs> This paper reported the discovery of the koala and modeled its emission to determine the nature of its progenitor system. Okay, so this is like an extra quick, extra bright something. Could it just be like (laughs) a really fast supernova or does it have to be different? Do we think it's, again, the tail end of some distribution or something else? Yeah, really great question. I'm going to talk a little bit about the characteristics of what we think is an explosion and then talk about why we think it's not just kind of a really fast supernova. So it went from half maximum brightness to maximum in less than two days and then decayed back to half maximum brightness in about three days. And it peaked at negative 20.6 in absolute magnitude, which is over a magnitude brighter than most type 1a supernovae. Hmm. What's cool is that It was a really short event, so you have to follow it up quickly, and the day after discovery, they obtained a spectrum using the Hale Telescope at Palomar Observatory. The spectrum looks consistent with a black body glowing at around 40,000 Kelvin, which is around the same temperature as some of the hottest stars that we've been able to observe. Wow. Okay. So it could be a star? (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) No, 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 no. Okay, so the, the guesses that have been lobbed so far, supernova that just evolves really quickly, and star. It's definitely not a star. What if it actually is a cow? If it's a supernova, it is a star, right? <laughs> is a supernova a star? A supernova is an event caused by the explosion of Yeah, a star. but it is both an event and a star. You are watching an event of a star. <laughs> but the explosion is the star. Okay, anyway. Oh, okay. The light is part now, of the star. Keep going. <laughs> the question <laughs> the question that you asked earlier, could this just be a really fast supernova? The problem is that the majority of supernovae that we observe are powered by the radioactive decay of heavy elements, predominantly nickel. And that decay timescale is around 10 days. So a rise time of under two days cannot be explained by the same heavy elements that you use to explain other supernovae. Okay. Okay. So what could be driving F-bots? The short answer is, we don't really know. The long answer is, we don't really know. A little time sculpture. <laughs> Fast and slow. Fast and slow. Let's dive into a little bit of supernova theory, and then we'll talk about what we think might be happening here. So in the earliest moments of a supernova explosion, a shock wave rips through the star and expands outward ahead of all the rest of the exploding material. This is called shock breakout, and generally it lasts less than an hour, maybe even a couple of minutes. But if there's a really dense envelope of dust and gas that surrounds the star when it explodes, then one of two things can occur. One, the timescale of the shock wave can be slowed by all that material, 
maybe it could be slowed enough to explain the two-day rise of the koala. Or, the shockwave can rapidly compress and heat all this surrounding material, which can then start glowing because of its heating. And after it leaves, the material can glow and expand and cool down. That might be what we're seeing. You said to match the two-day timescale, the shock has to slow down. So normally it's a lot faster than two days. Exactly. Under an hour, maybe even a couple of minutes. So it's also funny thinking about the fact that this is an FBOT, a very fast event, but to try and explain it, they're invoking something significantly faster that has been slowed down to a timescale over which we might observe it. It's sort of caught between the fast thing that would have made sense and the slow thing that would have made sense. Right, right, exactly. Awesome. Love it. I also mentioned radio emission was picked up. And the authors attributed this to synchrotron radiation, when electrons emit light as they gyrate along magnetic field lines. An important thing to note about synchrotron radiation is it has to be relativistic electrons. They have to be near the speed of light, which if they're not relativistic, if they're slower speeds, it's actually called cyclotron radiation, which will come up in my astrobite. Right, right. And in this case, they think the material is moving at over 40% the speed of light. And you can really only get those speeds from a compact object. So putting this whole picture together into what they think is happening, they think a massive star in a really dense environment of surrounding material collapses, a shockwave escapes, and it's slowed down by the surrounding material. We see some signature of that interaction. And then after the star finishes its collapse into some compact object, it sends out a massive jet of gas that accelerates the nearby electrons, and we see that as synchrotron emission at late times. I really can't tell if this is a contrived explanation or not, or if this is like, oh, of course, (laughs) that's very normal. (laughs) Are there caveats to this? Do you need some weird amount of surrounding material for this to work? Does it seem realistic to you? (laughs) I don't have a good sense. Yeah, great question. (laughs) Great question. So they estimated that you would need around maybe a little bit less than 0.07 solar masses in the surrounding environment. Mm -hmm. You can argue whether that's a lot or a little of surrounding material, but you need really dense material. And I think their Mm -hmm. explanation might seem a little contrived because they're invoking an explanation within the framework of supernovae that we've already observed. Mm -hmm. So how can we stretch the things that we've already seen to the rough timescales to match FBOTs? It could be the case that this is something completely different, like you mentioned earlier, a new object And then we just don't have the framework to be able to explain it. Right. I mean, these are rare events, right? Which means maybe if some unusual environment is necessary for it, it would make sense. And that's why we just don't see very many. Exactly. Yeah. The discovery rate of FBOTs is about three orders of magnitude lower Mm. than the most common supernova classes. So they're really hard to find, which is, like you mentioned, what makes them just so hard to figure out. Yeah. Now for the important question. How many cows and koalas do you need to get in the same place before it spontaneously (laughs) collapses in a beautiful explosion? I think that is a question left for future research. (laughs) You may never know. (laughs) You may never know. (laughs) Just imagining like a black hole of koalas and cows. Very strange. (laughs) It reminds me of, isn't there a book that the XKCD author wrote of like different Mm -hmm. absurd scenarios and then working through the physics of what actually might happen i feel like you could probably find a similar analog in that book yeah he, he did yes uh this is randall Munro's book what if mm. and he did discuss a 
mole of moles. <laughs> that is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd moles in a self-gravitating sphere. And it's pretty disgusting, but it's worth a read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, calculating these things wouldn't be that hard. You just have to get the mass and then what's the mass of a cow? I don't know. What's the mass of a koala? <laughs> we'll work on a follow-up paper yeah. for what's really powerful. I feel like we could do this order of magnitude like real quick, but... Not on the air. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Alex, for that awesome, very fast astrovite. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for the astro space sound of the temporally varying space fortnight. As we all know, a fortnight in space is slightly longer than a fortnight on Earth. Exactly. I, say, I love the idea of a temporally varying fortnight. <laughs> a fortnight that's not always a fortnight. I mean... Keep your eyes peeled. A fortnight is defined by the moon, right? And the moon right. is constantly moving away. So. Yeah, over what time scales? Fortnights are temporally varying. <laughs> All right, gonna play the sound. Yeah, let's hear it. All right, what do you think it is? Hmm. There was a lot of sort of static and background noise. Mm hmm. Plus, now that we know you go thematic, I figure it's got to be some kind of transient. Or maybe this is the time she breaks the pattern to throw us a loop. <laughs> She's been hustling us this whole time. Well, my, my first guess was it's not a sonification, but some sort of spacecraft noise, because that's what it sounded like. Maybe some background clicking or noise, background static noise. So I was going to say maybe something deploying in space from the ISS or... Uh, spacecraft uh, touching down on an asteroid or something like that. All right. That's not a yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to hear both guesses. My guess is that it's a transient signal from an instrument that uses counting statistics. So I would think maybe it's X-ray emission from some super energetic transient. Nice. Mm. Will was definitely closer. Dang. I am hustling you. Ah, I didn't no! go thematic. Oh, I knew it. Oh I God. knew it. All bets are off for every other episode. She's playing the long con. Gosh dang it. So this is the Cassini-Huygens spacecraft, actually. Well, specifically the magnetometer instrument that was on the Cassini spacecraft detecting ion cyclotron waves in the vicinity of Enceladus. Ooh, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so those are waves that are a longitudinal oscillation of ions in a plasma. So it's sort of a way to understand what the magnetic field of Saturn interacting with Enceladus looks like. It's basically giving you a sense of what kinds of electrically charged molecules or ions are present in the area, and it's providing sort of a map of that. I'm not going to go too much more in detail because I'm not a magnetic fields expert, but (laughs) yeah, it was a way to probe the magnetic field of Saturn interacting with Enceladus as Cassini was flying by. Man, I still can't believe I got so badly played. (laughs) I'm shocked. Like, you're in the making. You got to keep mixing it up, you know? (laughs) It's a pretty good sound. 
one of the things that I happen to know about these sorts of instruments is they have to be like right on top of the electrons to be able to pick up this sort of disturbance. I don't think you can remote sense something like this. I mean, obviously it is a magnetometer, so it's an in-situ measurement, but there's no signal that could be picked up from orbit or from Earth that would let them know that this sort of cyclotron event is happening there. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that really makes sense. And I guess that's why it seems like most spacecraft have some sort of instrument to understand the magnetic fields of the planet or whatever it is that they're orbiting. Mm -hmm. Assuming it's expected to have a magnetic field. I guess maybe like <laughs> asteroid missions, they wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. bother. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, thanks for bringing the space sound to us, Molina. Even though I got duped so badly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you for humoring me. Thank you for being duped. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> It'll sound great when this episode comes out. <laughs> All right. And now we're going to take it to the slow side. And Will is going to tell us about our slow object for today, which is hilariously way faster than the koala. <laughs> but it's all relative. <laughs> so take it away, Will. Yeah, that's exactly right. Fast and slow <laughs> is completely relative. <laughs> so this astrobite is called Radio Pulsar's How Slow Do They Go? And it was written by Aaron Perlman about a paper by C.M. Tan and others published in 2018. I already introduced pulsars. Those are neutron stars with a jet that is facing toward Earth, so we get a pulsing radio burst from their high rotation. Pulsars are pretty freaking fast rotators. They have intense magnetic fields, they have so much angular momentum left over from the star, and they actually spin from seconds to milliseconds fast. I mean, it's crazy. But mm -hmm. this bite is about the slowest spinning pulsar ever discovered, J0250 plus 5854. It rotates in 23 and a half seconds. So slow, gee. <laughs> yeah. It's significantly faster than anything I've ever studied, so... <laughs> So for context, you said milliseconds to seconds is normal. Is that right? Or what is a typical pulsar period? Right. So typical sub-seconds, the fastest spins 716 times per second. So oh, wow. it is wow. really extreme. And, yeah. you know, I got thinking, how fast would Earth have to spin for us to get <laughs> thrown off? So I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation because I was wondering if 716 times per second there's any way you could hold on. Do you guys want to take a guess at how fast the Earth would have to spin or rather how long the period one day would have to be for us to get flung off the Earth? I really don't even have any intuitive sense of this. <laughs> Boldly guess one second. All right. Yeah, I'm going to say Based like... Based off of nothing at all. <laughs> a tenth of a second sounds pretty terrible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound terrible but actually in the middle attitudes it would be about 11 minutes oh wow a second would be even worse but yeah oh yeah <laughs> a second would be bad mm. but 11 minutes day is pretty crazy i mean you would not you would have to hang on you would be weightless effectively right. at that time so potentially there's some alien civilization hanging on for dear life to this pulsar. Oh, God, I hope not. It'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
you don't want to live on this pulsar, but even still, it's better than every other pulsar. 23 and a half seconds is actually not all that fast. It's actually crazy slow for a pulsar. How was it discovered? It was discovered using the low frequency array called LOFAR for short, which is a radio telescope. And then when they discovered it, they followed up with many other observations, mostly in the radio. Also to find that there weren't any other frequencies you could observe it. Like for instance, there were no x-ray detections, which will come into play in a minute. What they cared about was the radio spectrum. So they took a spectrum and they found that it's a kind of a steep spectrum. So what that means is there's more contribution in the lower frequencies, the longer wavelengths, which is why it was easier to detect with LOFAR. And if the other slower pulsars have this steep spectrum, LOFAR should be able to detect those as well. But it's not 100% clear if that will be true. Were the authors specifically looking for really slow events or was this just like a surprise that happened to come up? I don't believe they were looking for low events, but I'm not 100% sure. But now if they have some sense for what they're looking for, the next thing to do would be to go comb through the data and see if you find other events, right? Yes, it would be. However, it is still challenging to identify these as pulsars in the data. And the problem is, because they're actually rather slow periods for pulsars, the techniques that are used to fold, is what it's called, all the periods so that you can compare how the light changes over time, kind of doesn't work as well. And the methods used to pick out the periodicity called a fast Fourier transform, which is pretty robust, it isn't quite as good when you get slower because it relates to how much data they're actually able to get from the pulsar. So why do they think it's rotating so slowly? What is weird about this particular pulsar that we don't see in the other ones? There's nothing else weird about it as far as they can detect. It has a magnetic field that is crazy strong, just like all the other pulsars. I have that it's 26 trillion times stronger than Earth's magnetic field, or 60 million times stronger than the strongest magnet we've ever produced on Earth. So, (laughs) and that's the whole freaking pulsar is that powerful. So (laughs) it's got the magnetic field down. It's got a steep spectrum, which is in line with some of these other objects, but at least makes it detectable, right? If others had steep spectra, they would be detectable as well. And the previous record holder was somewhere in the like 20 second range. So that all checks out, but it doesn't produce x-rays. And a lot of the other slow pulsars, which are called magnetars, because they also have high magnetic fields, they produce x-rays, but this produced absolutely none, which sort of makes things not work out. (laughs) So are we just lost? Is there like a leading theory on what this is? Or are we just like, ah, maybe someone will figure it out eventually if we find more of them? I don't think there's a leading theory. I think this is a, you know, like Alex's bite, there is some weirdness. We want to understand what's up with it. At this point, we don't. But one other interesting thing that they explored was a technique often used for pulsars. And it's a way of plotting pulsar properties on what's called a P, P dot diagram. Uh, P stands for the period, and P dot is the rate of change of the period, the derivative of the period, how quickly the pulsar is actually slowing down in its spin. And what they do when they plot P, P dot diagrams is to cluster the objects based on their similar properties, and then also throw the magnetic field and the ages onto the diagram so you can infer properties based on what you know. And then... 
they plot these pulsar death lines, which is a very <laughs> aggressive sounding thing. <laughs> but what it is, is a model for where you have to be on the P, P dot diagram to be undetectable. So a hmm. pulsar will drift downward till it crosses below a death line, at which point it's dead. We don't see it. It's gone. And it's dead to us. <laughs> this reminds me of if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it. Did it make a sound? If we can't detect the pulsar, is it even there? It's just dead right. to us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we can't detect <laughs> it, what does it matter? <laughs> but <laughs> this one is right on the line for one of the most prominent death line models. So it really doesn't make a ton of sense what's going on here. Are these death lines plotted for the current generation of surveys? Like, is it possible that they could chart out different death lines as our technology gets better at detecting more sensitively? I'm fairly certain that the death line models are updated, and they do keep coming out with others. This paper did plot a bunch of different death lines, so it's not just one model for the ages. It should be updated. So what you're saying is there could be pulsars that, for all intents and purposes, die, and then rise from the dead once we get better instruments. Ooh, that would be spooky. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it makes sense though, right? So maybe with the next generation of technology, we'll be able to find more like this? Or that's what it sounds like? It's a nice thought. I think the easier hurdle to clear is not better surveys, but better data processing methods. A lot of the problem now is noise. At lower frequencies, you get more noise when you try to do a fast Fourier transform, which is the way that periodicities are picked out of the data. The complexities of it are probably best saved for another episode, but (laughs) the problem is the noise just, just kills you with the low frequencies. So if we come up with better ways of extracting the period, avoiding the noise, then actually, yeah, they might rise from the dead. Cool. Right. All right. Well, thank you for the slow astrobite. Quote, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's time for our one sentence summaries. Will, could you give us your quick takeaways? Sure. With a period of 23.5 seconds, J0250 is the slowest spinning pulsar. But there are probably many others that we just can't detect. Until they rise from the dead. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alex, what do you have? Although the cow and the koala have brought us many insights into the nature of F-bots, it may take the full animal kingdom to construct a complete picture of their progenitors. Beautiful. Cute. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Alex, I think you mentioned that you defined a transient as something that changes over a span of a few years or less. I'm wondering why a few years? Is that related to the time scale of a PhD? And because I was just thinking, like, <laughs> I feel like events that take place over six years or less are probably much more likely to be studied than the ones that take 10 to 15 years, because that's just how long a PhD takes. And I'm wondering if that's an artificial barrier that's imposed on our understanding in any way. Hmm. That's a really great point. My assumption was that because that's the rough timescale of most supernovae, that becomes the rough timescale over which we look for these variations, at least at the longer end. But Mm. it's also, you make a really interesting point because it's possible that there are some events that maybe if they're lower energy enough to continually emit energy and they could have timescales significantly longer than multiple years, but still vastly less than the kind of millions and billions of years we typically think of in 
astronomy, we might never know because we wouldn't think to continually observe that thing for decades and decades. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, for exoplanet surveys, they're usually kind of ongoing continually. And so a lot of the longer period things that take years and years haven't necessarily been found, but there are a lot of efforts actually that are trying to target those that are longer term. But I don't know, for individual events, if it's somebody's thesis and it's just (laughs) (laughs) need to see this one particular event, then I feel like it would be more likely to go understudied, especially if they're sort of more unique events and you can't count on them on continually coming back, you know? Yeah, I mean, my naive guess would be that it's tough to get something bright enough to observe it and energetic enough. I mean, you need to continually emit enough energy for it to be detectable across those timescales. So I would naively think that across, say, like a hundred years, it's hard to get something that is stable in its energy output long enough to cause a transient of that timescale. But we've been proven wrong all the time. Maybe there are. What if the universe is a transient? <laughs> Maybe we'll find out. It's just an experiment that's going on for billions Wait of for years. Big crunch. We'll Love see. that we got metaphysical in the first couple of minutes. Like every uh, discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so that's sort of the longer end where I feel like there would maybe be some limit at six years. And I don't know. I would just be cautious that we might be missing some of those. But then on the other hand, they're also extremely rapid events that are tough to catch with, you know, good enough signal to noise since there just isn't a lot of time to resolve the full events in a lot of cases. So I was curious whether there are predicted scenarios that we think might just be a hair too fast for us to be able to actually observe with our current technology, like predictions for certain types of events that we expect. At some level, we're limited by scheduling constraints from observatories at the low end. I mean, if you really want to get like phenomena that evolve over minutes, maybe even like an hour or two, it's really, really tough to get an initial detection and to schedule all that on a different instrument, potentially around the world in that amount of time over which you can still resolve those features. So like the earliest moments in a supernova explosion, there are really interesting things that happen in a couple of seconds, Mm. maybe even less that we almost never see Mm. unless we have something like tests that scans it continuously and then we get great light curves. So it's physically possible. It's just practically difficult to get those. Right. Yeah. A good example to throw in here is the research that I do about stellar occultations. A stellar occultation, to remind everybody, is when an object in the solar system briefly blocks the light from a distant star. And these can happen randomly, right? You can get lucky and happen to see one, but usually they're predicted and you try to get a telescope in the right location to see them. And if it's a big object like, say, uh, Jupiter causing an occultation. Jupiter will cast a shadow so big you can see it anywhere from Earth, where it's dark, of course. But asteroids do occultations all the time, and these require extremely precise measurements, where the path you have to be in is narrower than an eclipse path. We're talking you have to be in like a kilometer or two path at the exact right time to see this sort of thing. And this was a huge challenge until about 20 years ago. Predicting these was impossible. And then things started to get better. NASA and the folks over at JPL got really good at producing ephemerides, which is a description of how objects in the solar system move. 
And as they got really good, it became actually possible to predict these with high precision. And now they're observed on a semi-regular basis. You can actually go online, see when they're going to happen in your backyard, set up a small telescope, and even watch one. You won't be able to see it with your naked eye because the stars aren't bright enough. So it's rare to get one that actually passes in front of a naked eye star. But with a small telescope even, you can see them. But there are probably a lot of these events that are happening all the time that we just can't see because they're passing over really dim stars or they're like mm-hmm. really tiny asteroids. So I guess that's sort of the limit yes. there, right? Where some of these events are so fast and so dim that it would be really cool if we could get the size distributions of all of these different asteroids around the solar system, but it's not as easy as that. No, it's not. And if you're good and clever, you can use a wide field survey to collect asteroid occultations that happen by chance, mm-hmm. looking for stars that aren't there. And there actually has been some effort to do that. Eh, it, the results aren't so <laughs> promising. A better way of detecting asteroids is for when they reflect light toward Earth. That's a much more promising way to do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, if things keep getting good enough, it's possible. But yeah, the hurdle here was even predicting that these could be observed. And sure, there are many, many more happening all around the Earth than we could possibly observe. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you'd like to read either of the two astrobites we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear more of our spectacular, fun-filled episodes with lots of space and research and good laughs, check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Have any suggestions for the show or just want to tell us how awesome we are? Send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.